Hello, darlings. This is Ronnie Burkett, and you're listening to Talking Sock, my favorite puppetry podcast. Thanks for joining us for another great episode of Talking Sock. Since returning to Australia from the London School of Puppetry, Jess Knight has been unstoppable. My trajectory in puppetry was one of making my own opportunities. I was a leader very often. In this episode, we correspond with Jess from Portland, Oregon, as she takes us through her adventure in big business stop-motion animation and a creative directorship of the puppet smithery and trash puppets. Join Jess and I now, here on Talking Sock. Today, we have Jess Knight. Welcome, Jess, and thank you so much for being on the show. Hi. Uh, You're very welcome, Pete. So, Jess, I am going to ask you the same question I ask all of my participants, and that is, why puppets? Puppets are magic. Puppets are 100% magic. It's a very unlimited art form as well, which I love. There's no limitation in what a puppet can or should be. Like, there's lots of ground rules and lots of people have different methods of, of viewing the world. But I think it's a fairly unlimited art form and, and, you know, there's no, it doesn't have to be gendered and you can tell stories in so many different ways. It's magic for me. I think that's one of the biggest parts of why puppets is it's a very magical art form. So I think we have to mention where you are and what you're up to Uh right now. So you were recently awarded a Screen Australia Fellowship for the amazing opportunity to work with Guillermo del Toro on the stop motion film Pinocchio. How has the experience of being in the city of Portland, Oregon been? And it's such a huge place for film and TV. How is it all going? We understandably are going through COVID-19 situations, but it seems like you've managed to adapt to that. So perhaps you could elaborate on that and tell us all about how it's going and what's the plan? Ah, uh, sure. <laughs> Portland is great. Portland is amazing. It's a really beautiful city. It's a very alternative city. In fact, coming from Melbourne, it's very strange because Portland is a very similar city to Melbourne. I think we are sister cities, even in an unofficial capacity. All of the things that Melbourne is known for, Portland is known for as well. Like there's stereotypes about men with beards and barbershops and pretentious craft beer and coffee and bicycles. I was going <laughs> to ask like, if they're coffee snobs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's sort of, and brunch, like everything that, that Melbourne has a stereotype for Portland seems to as well. And bad up and down weather. So very, very similar cities, I think. So I've acclimatized very easily. <laughs> the film itself, it's been incredible. It's been quite overwhelming. Like I think arriving here... I mean, it took me so long to get here. The visa process was really, really time consuming. So it was always up in the air as to exactly when I was going to get over here. And once I finally did, it was a bit like a dream. Like it was, it was so surreal and it's such a different environment to what I'm used to working in, in a lot of ways. Like in a lot of ways, it's very similar to environments I'm used to working in, but like, it's a huge production team for me, uh, for my standards. Uh, you know, I think our, the team on the production is something like 120 people between two buildings. So I work in the building known as HQ, which is where the puppetry, team is. So building the puppets, it's where the set part of the props team is, but then there's also some of the set people in the other building. The puppet team itself, I think, I think there's somewhere around 30 of us in the puppetry team. And so that spans from the sculptors, uh, mold makers, casting, armatures, hair, paint, costume, 
And then there's the puppet hospital as well, which they run between the buildings because basically apparently the animators, so the puppet operators, are reputedly quite rough. <laughs> with Apparently that's a bit of a, a, a reputation that animators have as being quite rough with the puppets. So the puppet hospital often is ferrying puppets between to repair them on the fly. And do they absolutely play that up? Like, do they have baby little stretches? We, we do have, there's a cardboard box that has Puppet Hospital written on it and um, the puppets get ferried between the buildings in the Puppet Hospital. Oh my gosh. And you said that there's someone just for hair because in Makatree, I know that like hairs are individually strong. Similar. So there's there's multiple people. There's a, there's a team for wigs. So in a lot of stop motion, I, I haven't gotten to work with the wig department yet, so I can't speak too much for wigs, but I did, I worked with the sculpting team for my first five weeks. My sort of second task was I sculpted a wig for a background character, which was very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> because it's very intricate work. It's a very fine level of detail and sculpting in clay is not my strongest suit in general, but especially at this scale where it's tiny, 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 tiny. On top of that, it's that you're sculpting for the approval of multiple people. I would have to get it signed off by my supervisors. They would have to get it signed off by the art director. Then he would have to get it signed off by the person above him. So it was a process. And everything in the film is like this. And this is what's so mind-blowing about it is as someone who a lot of my own puppetry at home that is fueled by me and my artistic vision, like I'm always of the ilk of movement is more important than aesthetic. And not that my puppets aren't beautiful, but these puppets in the functionality is beyond amazing. But the level of detail and finesse of every little thing, like the fact that this was a wig for a background character, and yet it was such a process of getting it exactly right. They actually talk about for this film, things being imperfectly perfect, perfectly imperfect, I think. What is that as far as direction goes? Because I also know that you, in your work with Puppets Mythery and with Trash Puppets, you are the approval person. You are that person who says, yes, let's go <laughs> ahead with this. I'm, I'm very intrigued as to how you've then gone back down to apprentice level and you've had to have all these people to approve to. How is that being in terms of a gear shift? It has been amazing and it has been challenging. I was really excited to come here and to be the small fish in the big pond. I'm privileged, but also I think I'm lucky and unlucky that for most of my career, I have not had the opportunity to be the little fish. I think from the get-go, my trajectory in puppetry was one of making my own opportunities and therefore... I was a leader very often and and it's kind of grown that way that I am often one of the more senior people on things and I craved being the little fish because I'm like, I'm going to, I learn more as the little fish. What am I doing at the top? I'm not meant to be there. So this has been amazing. It's been amazing to be the little fish and to learn so much. And I must admit it's refreshing to have a less responsibility sometimes as well and to be the underling. But it has been challenging for sure. Like to look at something that I'm doing, like sculpting was especially challenging, working with the sculpting team. I wouldn't necessarily see what they would see. I'd be like, look, it's beautiful. It's finished. And they'd be like, oh, I don't know. It's just, you know, these lines need to be cleaner or clearer, or there needs to be this, or this has changed. The bun, I had to create a bun for my character. And I could only see a brioche. And it started this whole funny thing in my head of <laughs> hair buns and bread buns. And <laughs> what came first, the bread bun or the hair bun? What's named after the other? And I tried to find it out and I couldn't, it was, uh, that was a, uh, you could tell I was tired and over my wig because I got so fixated on this issue. 
<laughs> One thing that I have noticed about you, and I know that you also studied at the London School of Puppetry, which would have been probably the last time that you really felt like an underling. And there's something about the discipline that I have to really admire about you in that during this placement and during your time at London School of Puppetry, you would take yourself up to bed early and you would just blog in the evenings about the experience. And I want to ask you what your vision was behind doing that and what kind of part of that process was that for you? When I was at the London School of Puppetry, I don't really remember how the blog started. It was kind of a tool for reflection and a tool for keeping track of things. I suppose it was kind of a diary or a journal or, or some way that I, I could keep track of what I was learning and what I was doing and also a way to reflect on that. So it was always more for me than for anyone. And then it was just a bonus that other people were enjoying it. It's actually been a real regret of mine that I didn't keep it up when I got back to Melbourne after London. I think I, I did maybe two or three when I got back to Melbourne, but then it, I think work got so intense and I had so many projects on at any given time and I was so wrapped up in that, that the blog gradually faded away and disappeared. And I've always regretted that that happened because I wish I could look back and reflect on some of the projects that have happened in the last few years when the blog has been non-existent. But coming here, the blog was a, was a very conscious choice this time because for my fellowship with Screen Australia, I need to obviously report back to them. I have to do a midway report and then an end. Once I'm back in Australia, I'll do my final report about my time here. And so writing the blog is going to allow me to remember like what it did feel like in those first few weeks and what I was learning because chances are I'm going to get so far down the line and doing other things that sculpting that wig and the frustration of getting the hair right will have evaporated by the end of my time. So it's a really good way for me to reflect and also, again, like there's so much that I'm learning, so many new skills, and there's not necessarily going to be time to hone and finesse every skill. It's like I'm getting a taster in each department. So the blog will also be a way that I can keep track of like materials I'm learning about, techniques I'm learning about, things like that. So back in Australia, you are the director creative director of Trash Puppets and The Puppets mm -hmm. Misery. Both have been very successful. And can you tell us where the journey with Trash began and how you got to it and where it is today? There's a lady who we know both together named Kay Yasugi, who talked of your time yesterday to me on the phone about your time at the London School of Puppetry when I was telling her that I was doing this interview with you. And she said, I remember thinking to myself, I cannot wait to see what this girl does in five years. So I reckon, I think you finished London School of Puppetry in 2014, am I correct? Uh, yeah. So here we are five years on from that moment and you are in Portland <laughs> and you do have two amazing companies that are yours. So yeah, tell us about where, where it all began. And it's just a lovely thought that you really have achieved so much in that five years. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you, Kay, if you're listening. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Kay was one of my teachers at the London School of Puppetry and um, someone that I very much looked up to and, and have learned a lot from over the years. So I very much appreciate that. Trash, where did Trash start? Well, Trash kind of did start at the London School of Puppetry, actually. My, my inspiration for it definitely started at the London School of Puppetry, though I didn't know at the time that that's what it was inspiring. But basically, for all of our puppets at the London School of Puppetry, we were encouraged to create mock-ups of our puppets, which is like a 3D blueprint. If we were making a wooden marionette, for example, we would first make a version of that marionette out of cardboard and paper and wrap it up and string it up to kind of check your proportions and check how it's going to look and how it's going to work. I would usually, for a marionette, even now, I would usually draw up a, a, an actual blueprint, a 2D blueprint, 
And for a lot of my other puppets, a mock-up is a, a really important way to, to kind of test things, especially because most of my puppets are very unique. I almost never make the same thing twice. I'm always figuring out new ways and new processes to make things move and make things work. And so mock-ups are really important. But at the London School of Puppetry, when I was making my mock-ups, I would often fall in love with my mock-ups and be like, well, why would I make, why would I make anything else? This little paper and tape lion marionette that I've just put together is amazing. I love him. (laughs) And so I think it was the fact that A, they were so engaging and I was like, oh, it doesn't actually matter that they don't look finished or that they look like newspaper. Like they're so engaging. And and that's where my whole ethos of it's not about appearance, it's about movement for puppets. Because I think, you know, it doesn't matter what a puppet looks like if it moves convincingly and it's operated well. But also the process of making those mock-ups was so therapeutic because it's so easy to make things out of cardboard and paper. Like, you know, you can just tear things and rip things and put it together and it's quick and it's, it's like instant gratification. And also there's no stakes. The stakes are so low because this is not for assessment. It's not for a client. It's not, it's just for you. It's just for you to see how things work. And so I found it, it was like this quick therapeutic process. And I think once I came back to Australia and I I sort of started playing with the idea of making puppets out of rubbish, just for myself, just at home, just as a silly thing to do. And I remember my partner at the time sort of saying like, Jess, these are cool. Like you're you're good at this, (laughs) making puppets out of rubbish. I guess that's how the idea was born. And then actually the the whole format of the workshops and everything came out of speaking to teacher friends, speaking to friends who I have in the education field and and realizing that there was a real need for, I guess, play-based sustainability learning. Like I think, you know, it was a time when schools were starting to have and you'll know the language around this better than I will, but schools were starting to have it sort of a checkbox in the curriculum for sustainability. Like they had to tick that box. Uh, there wasn't a lot of what we're doing now, which is play-based, creative-based learning about sustainability. Because for me, I believe like rather than just preaching the facts at them about recycling and climate change and all of the above, it's it's a fun and hands-on way to get them to, to learn about that stuff. And I think engagement through play is such an important way for kids and adults to learn. And so when it came to developing your first show for Trash, which is Escape from Trash Mountain, I think, I always thought that Trash came out of the sustainability first. So it's really interesting to see that the origin point is very different and that this Mm. came sort of naturally progressed. How is it then the workshops were the the first sort of idea and then the show came out of that? So why the the show and and how did you develop a storyline to this concept? Mm -hmm. So why the show? Good question. I guess because my background is mostly in theatre and performing was my first love, is my first love. Nowadays, I think making and performing are in, in equal parts important to my sanity. And I think we just knew that a show would be such a good complementary product to go with the workshops because it means the kids can either see the show, then have an opportunity to make a puppet of their own or vice versa. And it's just that sort of added inspiration and, and an extra way to show the possibilities of this form and also to, to really push home the message behind it all. How the story came about, 
Ben Anderson and I wrote the show together or wrote the original script treatment together. He was still living in New Zealand at the time. We had lots of these kinds of video conferences to come up with the show. And then the rest of it was kind of that classic rehearsal devising process <laughs> where it was myself, my um, co-star Amy Moore, uh, and our director, Jacob Williams, in a space together for, I think we had two weeks to take it from the script treatment to essentially the final product. It was a very quick turnaround. Yeah, it, it was beautiful. I think what comes out of that devising process can be so, so beautiful. And we were very lucky to have someone like Jacob to guide us through that process because he's a brilliant, brilliant director with a, with you know a ton of experience. And like I was very passionate about the show not having too much language in it. I'm very passionate about I don't think puppetry always needs language. I don't think stories always need language. I think there's a lot to be said for visual storytelling. And also it makes it accessible. I think that was my main thing. Like, A, I don't think puppetry needs language necessarily, but B, I wanted it to be something that could be accessible to people who speak all sorts of languages. It also means it's accessible to a deaf audience because the majority of it, we make a lot of sounds and we do make a lot of noise in the show. <laughs> But I think you would understand the story even if, even if uh, it was only visual. I want to ask you about the idea of being an independent maker, an independent performer, and seeking out a director and seeking out someone to help you script write. A lot of our listeners are independent performer makers. And I feel like a lot of that, the idea of industrializing the practice of performing and bringing in the, that team element to it is very daunting to a lot of us. And I want to know how you were able to create that sort of rehearsal process and why you gave it such a short time period for turnaround? Was that a way of getting the show just done or was it because of a client or how did that all come about? So I'm a huge advocate and believer in working in teams and asking for help and utilizing multiple people's skills. I mean, I think if you look at the way that all of my work has grown, my companies have grown, my relationships with the puppetry community, why do it alone? when there's so many talented people out there with so many skills and people who have skills that I don't have and skills that can complement my skills. And, you know, so I'm a huge advocate for working with others. You know, I, I, what, don't isolate yourself. There's no need to. As far as uh, reaching out to people, I guess I've never really struggled. <laughs> Maybe uh, Jacob Williams did call me uh, tenacious once. He was asked one word to describe me and he said uh, tenacious. So I'm, I'm not surprised at that because I think I've never been too shy to approach people and ask things. And when I first moved back from London, from the London School of Puppetry, even before I left London, I think, I, I sent out an email and I had no roots in the Melbourne puppetry community at that point or in the Australian puppetry community for that matter. I had met Kay, but she was one of the few. I sent an email out to every puppetry company I'd ever heard of and every puppet person I'd ever heard of in Melbourne. And I was just like, hi, I'm Jess and I'm into puppets. Do you want to catch up and have a cup of tea? I just want to meet you and know you and learn about what you do. That's too real right now. That's exactly what I'm doing <laughs> as I've moved to Melbourne. And I'm like, give me all of you. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> But I think so that's kind of, and that's kind of where my roots in Melbourne started, I think, is everyone just going, wow, Jess is enthusiastic. And I've tried to pay that forward. Um, yeah, it's you. I know it is. It's you. I can see. <laughs> but uh, I've tried to pay that forward. And it's why, like, I think my first line on the Puppets Smithery website is like, 
hi, I'm Jess. Let's have a cup of tea and talk about puppets. And I have paid that forward a lot. Like there's been a lot of people who have moved to Melbourne who have reached out to me, yourself included, and said, hey, like I'd love to get involved and catch up. And, you know, a lot of those people are now entrenched in the puppetry community because I was able to introduce them to other people who they could work with or get them involved in different festivals or companies. So I'm always really grateful that people were willing to have that cup of tea with me. (laughs) And therefore, I'm always very willing to to pay it forward. In terms of why the quick turnaround, uh, literally budget. We were lucky to receive funding from the City of Port Phillip, the Cultural Development Fund from City of Port Phillip. We also ran a, a crowdfunding campaign to get a little extra on top of that, but we still had quite a limited budget as uh, most of these productions do. So the rehearsal time, because we had rehearsal time and making time because all of the puppets were built for the show as well and the set, it was literally budget restrictions <laughs> that made it such a quick turnaround. And now you toured Trash Puppets in Sydney. You, you recently had a show with Trash Puppets at the Sydney Opera House. It's toured to the Riverside Theatre. Has it moved beyond Sydney and beyond Melbourne? Yes. The furthest we've been has been to all Auckland. We've done two big festivals in Auckland. So both at Auckland Live, which is kind of the Auckland equivalent of a Melbourne Arts Centre. So so that would be the furthest that we've gone with Trash Mountain. But we've, we've done lots of rural touring. We're part of the Regional Arts Victoria touring program as well. So we get to go out to lots of lovely regional and rural schools, which is so important as someone who grew up in a small town and didn't always have access to the arts in the same way kids in metropolitan areas did. I'm always really excited that we get to take Trash Puppets and Trash Mountain out to those kids in more remote places. And in the time of COVID-19, you are independently managing Trash Puppets with with your team from Mm. Portland and you've had to take everything online. I want to know what your vision is for Trash while we're in this crisis, but also what your vision for Trash is moving forward and what do you want to see Trash do in the future? Big questions, Pete. Yes. uh, During COVID-19, it's been really exciting, actually. Like we were quite prepared once this whole thing hit and we saw all of our gigs, events, festivals, schools, we saw everything get cancelled as everyone has. And so, you know, there was definitely a point there where we went, well, we're just going to have to pause and close down for a few months. But we've been very lucky that we've been able to stay open and start planning for how we're going to manage this. Um, We've had a few different councils who have used us for some digital and virtual experiences, which has been great. Uh, And it's kind of given us the opportunity to develop something that's kind of been on the cards for a while, but all of a sudden now is so much more important. And speaking of reaching kids in remote areas, now that everyone's kind of remote, we are developing online education packages, online workshop packages that schools will be able to subscribe to and and access making tutorials. And obviously there'll be teachings about sustainability as well. There'll be worksheets involved. That's really exciting to be able to put something out there that'll be able to assist teachers and give kids at home or or parents homeschooling as well, be able to assist them in sort of making, making this time manageable. But we're also kind of excited that beyond that, after COVID-19, we think these packages will still be really valuable for schools in remote areas that we can't get to. And we're excited for that prospect as well. Uh, The bigger vision for Trash Puppets, I mean, it's a tricky one because we've we've 
kind of been flying by the seat of our pants mostly. I think when you start a, a small business, staying alive is your goal. And we've grown in leaps and bounds. We're coming up to our fifth anniversary uh, in July. And it's incredible how much we've grown. And I, I think we now have around 20 employees who work for us, obviously majority of which on a casual basis, but lots of puppeteers and artists who work for us and our incredible admin team who I could not uh, do without. They're amazing. I guess our greater vision, and it is something that we're starting to talk about a lot more now. Like if anything, COVID-19 has given us an opportunity to have more discussions about our goals and, and what we want to achieve. And I, I think what we see is that we have the capacity to be reaching so many more people. And I think that is what our kind of bigger goal is, is that the amount of workshops we do in a school in a year is wonderful. You know, we give a lot of artists work. We give, bring a lot of joy and education to schools as well. But I see us being a full-time there's no reason why we can't be in a school every day of the week. So I guess that's our aim is to, is to be reaching more people and also to be constantly updating our messaging as well. Like we're very aware that the messaging around sustainability and what is most important in terms of protecting our planet is constantly changing and we never want to become stale in our messaging. We want to make sure that that we're relevant and helpful. Our, our greater message has always been saving the world one puppet at a time. And, and we take that pretty seriously. So the puppet smithery is, if I'm correct, your own personal way of taking on new projects and build outside of trash. But you've created this great network of puppeteers and builders in Melbourne in which you may refer a project to one of them if you can't do it. So how important is that fostering of a community among puppeteers for you? And you know, what is puppet smithery as opposed to trash for you? So the Puppet Smithery certainly started that way. I rebranded it a year or two ago because originally it was kind of like I had trash puppets and then I had what was called Jess Knight, the puppeteer and puppet smith. Uh, it got to a point though where more often than not, I wasn't working alone. As I said, I like to work in teams. And so more often than not, I was working with multiple other people to create puppets, to create shows, to create experiences. And so uh, it felt the rebrand was necessary because I didn't feel comfortable with my name representing the work of a team of people. I was like, we are a team, we are a company, we are a collective. So we rebranded as the Puppet Smithery. So now, although it is still a lot of things coming through me, I do see us as as a company of people. So I, I have a number of people who I frequently use, like Jess Davey uh, is an amazing puppeteer who is my partner in crime for the Puppet Smithery. Uh, we always work together on projects. Danny Miller is another one who's heavily involved. Uh, we have a big team of people now for the Puppet Smithery, similar to the way Trash works. We have a whole array of amazing employees at Trash and I have a whole array of amazing contractors at the Puppet Smithery who are utilized. So yeah, the Puppet Smithery, I guess, is different to Trash, mainly in that it's more around sort of theater and TV and film and and things that are, that can be a bit more polished. And uh, like Trash has a very specific goal and products and we want to keep that clear. It's for schools, it's for festivals. The Puppet Smithery is a lot broader. It's sort of the area where I can tackle just about any kind of project. And then on top of that, like I, speaking of community, and I think the puppetry community in Australia and in Melbourne, especially, we are a family. Everybody looks out for each other and we all work together and cross over. You know, people come and work for me at the Puppet Smithery and I go work for them at their company and we create things together. And community is in, 
just insanely important. I think not only in puppet land, but just in general, as humans, I think in this digital age, we even pre-COVID, let's ignore that, we are becoming more and more isolated from each other. And it's often about your individual goals, your individual needs, and, and we get very insular and focused on ourselves. And actually, it's in our nature to be a community and to rely on each other and, and to have these relationships with other human beings. <laughs> and I think the puppetry community does that exceedingly well. I think we, we are a big family and, and yeah, it's, it's so important. Wow. Well, we, I think that's a really lovely note to take a break on. So you are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Jess Knight. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Jess shortly. We believe that podcasts should be advert free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Jess Knight. We've been talking about trash puppets and the puppets mythery, but now Jess, it's time to talk more about your experiences as an interdisciplinary artist. And firstly, you puppeteered now in both theatre and film and TV contexts. What's your preference? I would say both for different reasons. Theatre is definitely my my first love. And I, I think, you know, nothing quite beats the thrill of seeing and feeling that reaction from your audience and and receiving that energy from your audience. So I I guess live performance is probably the thing that I enjoy most, but then film and TV are amazing as well. And you're reaching a much wider audience in that regard. And in both, I love performing and I I love working with other creatives. And and so I guess theatre is probably, yeah, live performance is probably the one that is very dear to my heart. But TV and film are mediums that I... am very excited to explore more and explore the possibilities of. I kind of see my work moving uh, more in that direction in the coming years. But, you know, it's always hard to predict. I first found out about you only late last year when I saw Judy and Punch at the cinemas in Sydney. I want to ask, you were the puppet person on that film. So what was that experience like for you and how did you get it? (laughs) So the puppet smithery built all the puppets for the film and operated the puppets for the film and also uh, did the puppetry directions. There was a team of us, as I mentioned, the puppets material as a team. So definitely I would have been the lead on that, but the puppets were built by myself, Danny Miller and Jeff Davey. Danny and I uh, did most of the performing, but then David Slack came in and did some performing as well. And Jacob Williams was our puppetry director. So there definitely was a team of us. I've probably forgotten to mention people, uh, but there were multiple people involved. Uh, oh, Nathan Reardon and Lachlan McLeod also came on and did some work. It was a great experience. Very lucky to get that job. I mean, I'm always careful to use the word lucky. I don't love the word lucky. Sometimes when people say, oh, you're so lucky to have a job that you love. And I'm like, well, I've worked really hard. So I'm always <laughs> careful about the word lucky. So I think it was timely that we got this job. We, we, we were ready for it. But it actually came through Philip Miller. So Philip has been very central to 
my puppetry journey. He gave me one of my first ever professional puppetry jobs, which was on Peter and the Whale, operating the beautiful uh, marionette Peter, who I know was mentioned uh, in your interview with Philip. Philip actually was contacted by the director, Mira Fultz, and asked about this film and, and creating these marionettes. And Philip wasn't in a position to uh, do that himself, even though he does build beautiful marionettes. Uh, and Philip uh, knew both Danny and I very well. Danny was also involved in Peter and the Whale. We were we were both performers, which is how Danny and I met, actually. Philip introduced Danny and I to Mira. As Philip knows, both Danny and I specialize in marionettes. And yeah, it all kind of uh, came together that way. I don't think at the time we really understood how big a project it was going to be, but it, it was very exciting. It was It was a great project and uh, definitely a really good challenge for us. It was probably one of the, one of the biggest things I've undertaken uh, in terms of a build and a turnaround time <laughs> and the first feature film that I was involved in. So, you know, that was all very exciting. Punch and Judy has sort of been a staple of puppetry culture for so long. What are your thoughts and what's your take on the way in which Judy and Punch portrayed Punch and Judy characters? Well, interestingly, I learned a lot about Punch and Judy through uh, the Judy and Punch process because, of course, our reaction would have been similar to, I'm sure, a lot of puppet people when Mira first approached us and said, oh, we're doing this movie. It's kind of based on Punch and Judy and we're having these marionettes. And we were like, marionettes? What? In Judy and Punch? In Punch and Judy? What? (laughs) What? The glove puppets? But actually, um, if you look back in history, some of the first iterations of Punch and Judy were marionettes. And I never knew that. And so I learned that from doing this film. And I thought the way that they told the story through the film and the way that the relationship of the characters, Punch and Judy, the puppeteers, mirrored the kind of traditional story, I thought it was really clever. I thought it was really cleverly done. You know, there's even a scene where... Judy meets the crocodile and, you know, uh, spoilers, the baby going out the window. <laughs> Just Horrifying. made me laugh. It's oh. like, how, how can you laugh at that moment? But when we saw it, uh, we saw it um, at MIFF for the first time at the Melbourne International Film Festival and uh, the whole theatre erupted in laughter when the baby went out the window. The definition <laughs> of black comedy, hey, yeah. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. So it was great. It was great. I thought it was a really, a really strong portrayal because I think what Punch and Judy is at its core is it's, it's, a, it's a thing where kids would sit and watch this brutality and laugh. They would laugh and laugh and laugh at these glove puppets beating each other with bats. What the film manages to do is it's really dark and it's really confronting at times, but then it's also really hilarious and silly at times. And so I think the choices they made actually really worked in telling that story of of Punch and Judy. (laughs) Yeah, certainly true to form of the style that it represents. In this placement that you are undertaking, you're doing a great number of new tasks and you've got lots of skills to prepare for the stop motion format, which you've already mentioned a little bit about. But one of your personal projects that I've loved seeing on the web uh, is your self-portrait in mold making. And using that project sort of a stick, as a kickstand for other things that you'll do, how do you think your practice is going to re- change as a result of having so much sort of involvement now in film uh, and this other process of, of puppet making? 
Oh, I'm really excited about it, actually. I'm really excited about how my processes and and everything is going to change because I think everything that I'm learning here, it's not only uh, relevant to stop motion puppets, it's relevant to all puppets. And I'm very excited to to learn these new techniques and start implementing them in into my own work. And I'm excited to create my own stop motion work for sure. Like I think there's definitely, that's going to happen in future. But also the things I'm learning, I mean, mold making itself, there's going to be so many new opportunities. I'd done some mold making prior to coming here, but not a lot. And now with this greater understanding of making molds and casting from molds, there's going to be so many ways that I can implement that into the puppets I build. It's going to mean I can replicate things, make multiple versions of things, you know, so that's really exciting. The armatures, which I haven't had my time with the armature department yet. I'm really excited to learn more about the armatures. I've, I've been privy to discussions about the armatures and seen how they work and what they look like and how intricate they are. And so I'm, I'm really excited to learn about those because I think that sort of knowledge can definitely cross over between any form of puppetry. There's going to be a, a lot of room to be a bit more slick, I guess. Like, not that I don't... I think I love the handmade aesthetic that I have, and but I guess... My time with the sculpting team definitely taught me that it is okay to slow down and that it's okay to take your time. And I feel like I'm always rushing. I'm always, you know, I've got a deadline and I've got a thing and I have to get it done within a week. And so perhaps I don't spend as much time finessing things as I could. And being forced to, on the first sculpt I did, uh, it needed to have a wood grain finish. And I redid that wood grain I don't even remember, six or seven times. If you read my early blogs, it's all my frustration about the wood grain. But I think what it taught me is like, if I do apply myself and if I do really take my time, then I can achieve these really intricate finishes. And I think, I I don't know that my work would ever be the level of detailed and finished that these puppets are because this is just immense. But I do think that it's going to impact and affect the way that I work. And um, I'm very excited about that. Wow. I think it's a timely point to ask about your career in puppetry really has happened very quickly. And if I reflect back on the other interviews I've done with other practitioners, I always ask them what advice you have for young puppeteers and puppet builders. And I I have to ask you the same question because you are one of them and you are sort of uh, someone who has made a career in puppetry as a young person very quickly. So what is your advice to other young puppeteers and people of the same ilk who want to get into this kind of stuff? Well, firstly, thank you. (laughs) That's lovely. Don't have a narrow view of what puppetry is or what you want to do within it. Allowing and not limiting yourself to what you think you can do as well, because I think having a limited perspective of what you can do, what you want to do, what's available to you can really be detrimental. Like, I think a big part of why. I'm able to do this as a full-time job and it is because I'm flexible. Like I teach workshops through Trash Puppets. I was a performer for Camp Quality, running around in the Royal Children's Hospital. I make puppets. I run courses for adults. I perform with puppets. I perform giant puppets. I operate marionettes. I do muppety lip syncy stuff. It's just being open to any possibility. Like I was even a props person on a on a film shoot once where literally my job was to hand the actor their helmet and then hand them their sunglasses and keep track of the props. Don't have a narrow view of what it can be. I think, 
you know, you're going to get more work if you're a bit of a jack of all trades, you know, as much as I love people like Philip Huber, who has managed to make an entire career out of marionettes. He is an expert in marionettes. He builds these immaculate, detailed, incredible marionettes. He told me once how long it takes him to make a marionette. And I can't remember now, but it's such a long time. And I'm like, I wish I could spend six months making one puppet. And look, if you want to specialize and if you want to be that guy and you go, I'm going to just do marionettes and that's all I'm going to do. I mean, go for it. I'm not going to step on your dream, but I think it's less likely that you're going to make a full-time career out of that. I mean, look, Philip Huber's done it. I'm not saying it's not possible, (laughs) but I think having a broad skill set is so important. And then the other big tip would be networking. As we were saying earlier about contacting people and having cups of tea and getting to know people, go to every festival, go to every show. If you go to a show, don't be afraid to stick around afterwards and say hello and introduce yourself. Knowing people, because in the end, in the puppetry community, I mean, in the arts community, but I think especially in the puppet community, I've always said this, it's so much more about attitude sometimes than it is about skill. If I had two people in front of me, one who was an amazing, amazingly skilled puppeteer and maker, but had a really poor attitude, the other person who was a beginner and enthusiastic, maybe didn't know as much about puppetry, but was so nice and kind and had a great work ethic. I'm going for that second person every single time. Mm. So, you know, introduce yourself to people, get out there and make friends and don't be limited in what you think you can do or want to do. You're a puppeteer who is an Australian in another country representing Australia in your career and in your industry. How do you describe Australian puppetry to the international audience and to the international industry? (laughs) Are they a merry band of of crazy lagabouts (laughs) or what are they? (laughs) Um, I think definitely, like, I, I always say about how vibrant a community we are and how much of a community we are. Like, we're, we're, we're as I've, I've mentioned the word family a number of times, but I always talk about my puppet family. And it is probably one of the strongest things that keeps me connected to Australia and to Melbourne is this incredible puppet community. I think we're very vibrant. I, I often say that, you know, what what we might lack in size, we make up for with enthusiasm because we're a small community in comparison to other arts communities. Puppetry is, I was asked on a radio interview once, not asked, told, this radio interviewer said to me, oh, well, I suppose, you know, puppetry is a dying art form. And I firmly responded, excuse me, puppetry is a re-emerging art form. I Thank you for saying I- that. Thank, <laughs> because the same thing was said to me, and this is hilarious, the day I went and printed One Orange Socks business cards was the day the oh guy who printed the business cards for me went, oh, puppetry. That's a bit of a dying art, isn't it? And he hands me my 500 business cards for my puppet business and I go well, gee, thanks for the faith in my new business that I'm just about to start. Like, wow. <laughs> I know, it's like, who, who are you talking to? Exactly. Yeah, it was, it was a, I couldn't believe it. They said it off air on this radio interview, which was good. Yeah, I firmly responded, we're a re-emerging art form. And I do believe that because I think if you look at the trajectory puppetry has had in the last five to 10 years, it's just up and up and up. Like, I think the film industry is realizing that puppetry stands the test of time a lot more than digital effects do. And also that it's just something, there's something so magical about these tangible things. And so you're gradually seeing more and more puppetry coming back into sort of mainstream film. Theatre as well. I mean, theatre in the last 10 years has just been flooded with more puppetry. The Melbourne puppetry scene is no exception to that. I think we're a constantly growing 
community. I think the Australian puppetry community is also very welcoming. I know my good friend, Adam Prulks, who did an internship with the Puppet Smithery last year or the year before, uh, who's from Canada. He came over to Australia for three months to work with the Puppet Smithery. I was working with a blank canvas at the time. So Adam came in and worked with a blank canvas as well. He said to me at one point, because I kept introducing him to people and he kept going and visiting different puppet people and, and doing this thing. And, and he said, he was like, I don't know how this has happened, but I feel like I've somehow gotten the magic key to every puppet studio in the country. I was like, well, that's how, Austra- <laughs> I was like, that's how Australian puppeteers are. We're just, I think we're very open and, and very welcoming. It's a very welcoming community, I think. Jodie Foster about 10 years ago, said of a film industry that had been kind of ripped apart a little bit by torrenting and by risk-averse decisions, that the industry in film has become more risk-averse and has been limiting itself to taking new chances with new ideas and new projects. And the the rule of thumb was to start rehashing old old ideas and and sort of digitally remastering and, and retelling stories. Do you think the film industry has done that or is coming out of that? Do you agree or disagree with that kind of idea at first? And do you think the film industry is now realizing that puppetry can be one of the ways that we make original stories? I think a bit of both. I mean, I think I think we're constantly reminded that the film industry is a money-making industry and not an art-making industry. I think it's it's often very apparent, e.g. when Disney decides to remake every single classic 2D Disney film in a 3D way. <laughs> I think, you know, it's it's often very apparent that it's a money-making business. But, you know, I think it's with films like Pinocchio, which I'm working on here, that you can really see that the art is still alive. Like this film, like they have created their own production company just to create this film. And it's something that everyone's very passionate about and telling this story in the most beautiful way imaginable. And it is a piece of art. You know, this is an example of where the film industry can be about making art. And, you know, and I think there's such a vast majority of it that it is, you can see the money, that greed attached to it. But I think people are seeing the value of puppets for storytelling again. In some of the most recent Star Wars films, they've started, you know, using real effects again and and incorporating puppetry again. And sometimes it's a mix of digital effects and puppetry. And it's great. It's great to see puppetry being used in these new contexts. I love everything Netflix is doing because I think what Netflix basically did is where TV stations and, and these big you know movie companies, like they just weren't giving the little guy the opportunity when people had these original scripts that were new and different and from a new director and people weren't giving them that opportunity. And Netflix has just been the yes man of this time going, yes, make that original thing, make that you know indie, arty film, TV show, whatever it is. And so I think things like The Dark Crystal is a huge thing. Like the amount of money that would have gone into creating that new series and and the incredible puppets in it. And, you know, I've been very lucky that here on Pinocchio, I'm actually working with a number of people who worked on that series. And so I've been able to ask them questions about it. And it's incredible that Netflix is supporting things like that. I think more and more the artists are taking the film industry back (laughs) or trying to, you know, I think there'll always be that money-making side of it, but because, hey, we all want to make a living off our art. It's exciting to see. One thing that I think Disney has gotten right, and I think I'm going to introduce this really as a new segment to the show, which is something that I'm absolutely geeking out on. I'm going to call it The Geek Out, is this great new show. I don't know if you've seen it on Disney Plus called Prop Culture, but it is the Disney archives have sort of been reopened and film by film, they are going through uh, and it's hosted by a collector of props 
all the amazing different props and, and set pieces and costumes that have been put together wow. in the film industry. And I have to say, I've only watched the first two episodes in of Mary Poppins and Tron, the original 80s Tron, and I am blown away by it. And it's, it really is a lovely hark and a lovely tip of the hat to all the people behind the scenes in those elements so that we're so familiar with as puppeteers. We, we often see, see ourselves as prop makers and costume because we do everything in that realm as well. So it is really great show. So I want to ask you, what is something at the minute that you are geeking out on in pop culture or in uh, you know, puppetry or something that like you just really got your teeth sunken into since COVID started as a way of passing the time? Oh, good one. So uh, a couple of things that initially spring to mind for me is uh, me and my housemates have gotten really into this show called The Repair Shop, which is a British reality TV show about conservators. Basically, people bring in these old antiques, but might be like an old wooden chest, a rocking chair. Sometimes there's toys, like a little toy truck or a spinning top or paintings, or sometimes there's even been a couple of puppets. There's like these two ladies who are the teddy bear specialists, and people bring in these old antiques that are, that are falling to bits or whatever. And basically you get to see these amazing conservatives and, and restorers, experts in their field, restore these items and it's incredible the clock making guy or the clock repair guy is one of my favorites um there's also a guy who repairs old jukeboxes so me and my housemates have been geeking out about that we have churned through every episode of that it's on netflix here in the states but i'm not sure what platform it's available on at home but if you can get your hands on the repair shop it is a brilliant show. I mean, A, it's British and who doesn't love British TV? Uh, right. But B, just seeing all these processes they go through, I've learned so much through it <laughs> and it's it's really lovely. The other thing, so at my house, we have been doing a, a daily drawing challenge and I'm not someone who considers myself good at drawing necessarily. It's been such a therapeutic thing. Like every day we have a prompt. So one of us comes up with a prompt and then we all have to draw that by the end of the day. And then we stick it on the fridge and we reveal our drawings when they're all ready. And a lot of people have been joining in online. So a lot of different friends uh, have been joining in and I've been posting them on Facebook every day, just on my personal Facebook. That's been really fun actually, because some of them are really silly. Like uh, what did we have? Tim Burton characters applying for jobs and Xena ordering Froyo aboard a dinosaur. And <laughs> there's been lots of silly ones. So the Power Rangers puppeteering was my absolute oh, yes. <laughs> favorite one of those drawings. It was so funny, and it actually made me go into one of those complete YouTube deep dives of the, of the Power Rangers. And a few of those drawings have made me just go, "Oh, that thing I remember from back in the day." But yeah, I've loved watching it. It's been really, really cool. Hey, uh, Jess, through Trash Puppets, I, I just want to chuck this question in because it's something that I, I really love. You've become synonymous with sustainability projects through Trash and your name is paired with sustainability. Particularly, you've been doing a bunch of projects for enterprises such as Melbourne Zoo. I want to know, where do you see your puppetry taking on social causes in the future? Yeah, I've been really, again, that word lucky springs to mind. I've been very happy to be so involved with causes that matter because I guess as artists, sometimes we can feel when you look at the greater state of the world and, and you know, you go, oh, what am I doing? What am I doing to help this? And, and, you know, I think the arts and connecting the arts with kind of activism is so important. And if you're going to say something, make it matter. And so 
my connection with Zoos Victoria has been just an incredible, incredible blessing for me because I'm very passionate about a lot of the same things they are passionate about. And so I work with them on different conservation campaigns. And I'm so excited to be even a small part in them making positive change in the world. Like one that I was really proud of was actually the first campaign I worked on, which was Don't Palm Us Off. There was a petition for everybody to sign, which was aimed at the Victorian government and getting the labeling of palm oil mandatory on Victorian products. And that campaign was successful. That is now a law in Victoria. And my orangutan, I had two orangutan puppets involved in that campaign. I love the idea that I was in some way contributing to that result and that conversation, you know, that parents with their kids after they had seen my orangutans and and had someone talk to them about the campaign, that then they are having a conversation about that and about palm oil and about orangutans. And my work with, with Zoos Victoria has been just an amazing part of my career. And, you know, I'm always excited for, for what's to come next with Zoos Victoria, which they're actually, they're a huge supporter of the arts and they are, they understand very well the impact that the arts can have. I was also involved in a show there last year called The Waterhole with a blank canvas where we had these beautiful giant light up puppets built by Joe and the team at a blank canvas. Again, that was all about drought based on the Graham Bass novel of the same name, The Waterhole. Yeah, so it's really amazing to, to be part of these kinds of things that are making a difference and starting these conversations. Where I see it going in future, I guess, I always want my work to be saying something. And, you know, when it's your job, like sometimes you you can't afford to be that picky when someone says, hey, I need you to make this puppet for this show. And it's like, okay, well, I'll make a Toto for The Wizard of Oz and that'll be what it is. But I think for my own work and my own output, like definitely even now with this idea that I want to create a stop motion film in the future, potentially in the short term, uh, I would, I'd like to look at doing a short film. Already I've started thinking about like what what would I want it to say? What would I want it to be representing? Like, what is a cause that I would want to attach to it? Because it's all well and good to tell a beautiful story. It's all well and good to show a beautiful piece of art. But if it can say something more meaningful and and help to make positive change, why not do that? My leanings at the moment are actually not necessarily on the sustainability side of things, but as someone in the LGBT community, LGBTQI+++, I, I potentially see it being something like that, helping to raise awareness around some issues on that side of things. Um, but yeah, I definitely see my work always, always trying to start conversations. And as a last question, Jess, if you had a platform to say thank you to a puppet mentor or a hero for you in puppetry, who would that person be and why would that they, they be that person for you? I mean, I've already mentioned him, but Philip Miller, I think of Philip. I mean, Philip is a dear friend. We've worked together on multiple projects, but on top of that, he's been such an incredible supporter of mine. He's always open if I want advice. I would say thank you to Philip. Thank you, Philip, for always looking out for me. And he was the person I was the most excited to tell about this fellowship and gave me the greatest reaction I could have asked for. Philip Miller has been someone who has been very crucial to to my, my puppetry journey and experience, I think. 
Well, Jess, you really do shine the, the idea of the, the community and the family of puppetry. So it's been lovely talking to you, but we are out of time. Thank you so much for talking sock with us today. And Jess, where can people find you? Multiple places. Currently in my bedroom in Portland, Oregon. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can find me at, either on Instagram at the Puppet Smithery or at Trash Puppets Oz, AUS. You can find me on Facebook under the same names and our websites are trashpuppets.com and thepuppetsmithery.com. Thanks, Jess. And thanks for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and we'll talk sock again soon. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials, and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at One Orange Sock Productions and check out our episode blog at oneorangesock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions, and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangesock.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Vanier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. We'll be back next week with another great episode here at Talking Sock.